0: Hello everyone. My name is uh, Bunky Markert. I'm the uh, chair of the City Lit Project, which is uh, the organization that is uh, presenting this program and the other programs in the building uh, here at the Enoch Pratt today. Uh, I want to introduce uh, our panel for this session, for um, the uh, poetry and translation, and uh, and welcome all, all the uh, the panelists. And uh, well, you, you will be, I'm not going to attempt to <laughs> Destroy your names, so, 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 so you, you, you will do that. I just want to mention that uh, this session, there's nothing coming after it, so. Uh you can be somewhat relaxed you know in terms of uh, the timetable you know you can extend it if you want, uh, obviously uh, if you've got to go to some other session you know, by all means. I just want to make mention too that uh, they 'll be available to talk and uh, sign books and, and, and some some of the books I think may be downstairs, uh, but some of you folks have your own books with you and so forth and I also just want we have a uh, sort of a um, a review uh, card sheet on the back table. If you're so kind, just you know, jot some comments about the session. It's, it's always helpful to us in the future when we when we uh, prepare these things. Anyway, uh, enjoy yourself. Thanks for all. Thanks, yeah. Thanks to you all for coming and enjoy the panel. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Welcome to all of you. And uh, my name is Danuta. Uh-huh. Aha. <laughs> okay. Welcome to all of you. <laughs> i think maybe you want to move closer just in case that the voice (laughs) Uh, my name is danuta or danka whichever you prefer and my last name is kosk kosicka Uh, i know it's difficult but it gives you a taste of what's coming the translations the foreign languages on behalf of my fellow panelists and myself, I wanted to thank the organizers and especially the tireless Greg Willem and um, Judy Cooper for having us here uh, as part of this celebration of literature. I believe that this um, is the first time that translators and translations um, have been included in the city lead, and I hope that it becomes a tradition. The event is co hosted by DC Area Literary Translators Network DC ALT, ALT in short and uh, La Craven Review. And thus it's a double pleasure for me as a founding member of DC Alt and a co editor of LaCraven Review. Uh, DC Alt was conceived and started by Yvette Nyser Morano. It now counts 50 area translators, and we move on a monthly basis in Kensington in a bookshop. And last year we came up with the idea of spreading the word, sharing our experiences in a panel like this, reading examples of translations, sharing our thoughts on the process, and discussing with a wider audience. We started last year with a program at the Writers' Center in Bethesda. And then every time we do this, uh, it may be different. Actually, it is different depending on the venue and on the participating translators. Now, a few words about La Craven Review. It's a literary quarterly, a locally-based publication with a worldwide reach. We get submissions from all over the world, and of course, in my uh, translation section, I feature uh, poets and tra- uh, translators from all over the world. Uh, with us here is uh, Dan Cadi, one of the pillars of Flagrant Review. <laughs> and um, uh, I guess Chris didn't make it. <laughs> we'll see, maybe come late. I joined them in uh, January 2011, to take care of the translation section and with a very clear vision of what I wanted. <laughs> I wanted each issue to be a different language. So up to now, um, we have put uh, out 11 issues, 10 languages. In every lang- um, issue, I-, I try to have more than one poet writing in that language. So for example, um, Nancy Naomi Carlson has uh, translated poems of uh, a poet, uh, René Char, who lived in France, but also a poet, um, Suzanne Dracius, who lives in Martinique. So, so this is what I like. They both write in the same language, but they come from different cultures and geographically different regions. Then, uh, in other issues, uh, I had two. Three poets uh, writing in Mayan modern Mayan language, which I think is exciting. you may want back, go back to the Lacraven review and uh, check it out. also three different poets writing in Turkish so and always we feature the original language poems with the translations um, The spring issue features Russian and uh, the translator is Catherine Young, who is here on the panel. And the next issue will feature, uh, I guess you probably guessed, it will feature Persian poets <laughs> translated by Ahmad Karimi Hakka. Translators differ very markedly in, in their approach to translating, as will be visible throughout our program, The differences follow from diverse backgrounds, very diverse for the four of us, particular languages of interest, and also the conscious or subconscious selection of what matters most in each translator's creative process, giving a poem a new life in its target language. I will not do extensive introductions of each of us. Our biographical information is available on the CityLit program site. Uh, All of us have books of translations to our credit. Nancy Naomi Carlson's books include critically acclaimed Stanler poems by René Char, a French classic, and forthcoming translations of Suzanne Drassius from Martinique, as I mentioned. Samples of both have been published in La Craven Review. So, so this is the, a very good example. That's what I want to do. I want to promote also the books in which the foreign language poets are published. And best of all is if the originals are published alongside the translations. And the books that um, interest me most for the La Craven Review are either recently published or forthcoming you know, like this year or in the nearest future. Professor Karimi Hakak, the chair of the Middle Eastern Studies Department at the School of Languages, Literatures, and Cultures at the University of Maryland, is the author, editor, of translator of over 20 books. Katrin Young's poems by Ina Kabish is forthcoming from artist-proof editions later this year, while her own Dane of the Border Guards is just out. Her past translations of Inakabish won a share of the 2011 Brodsky Spender Prize. Oh, I forgot to mention that Nancy has been awarded a National Endowments for the Arts Literature Translation Grant, and it's a big thing. Okay, so we will read in alphabetical order, except that I'll go last and uh, as it was mentioned, uh, we don't. We can stay in this room forever. So, <laughs> if there is an interest and you would like um, discussion, we are ready to share with you. And um, uh, with this, I ask Nancy. I don't know if you want to come here or I your other I'll, state. I'll come
2: on up. Thanks. Like everybody else. Is. So you're, you're a captive audience here. Um, you heard that we can have the room forever, but if you do have to leave the room, we will understand. Thank you for coming. Thank you to the organizers for City Lit. Thank you, Danka, for being the person behind our panel to make this happen. And how many people in the audience are poets? Ooh, yes. Yeah. And it's National Poetry Week, so we have to say who we are and be proud. Month, right. And how many are translators? Woo. So that's very interesting that you found your way here. Speakers of other languages. That was my next question. How many of you are speakers of other languages besides English? Yes.
3: Yes. But
2: right, right. So that does it too. Well, I thank you for coming this afternoon. We're each going to be very brief, and then we'll save time for question and answer. My NEA project was to translate the work of Abdurrahman Waberi. So in addition to René Charles, a Parisian, um, south-of-France person, and Suzanne Drassius from Fort-de-France in Martinique, Rahman, Abdou, we call him, is from Djibouti, which is in the eastern part of Africa. And it's nestled between Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Somalia. And they speak French. And it's very tiny. It's about the size of Massachusetts. And the political regime is a little bit dicey. So when I asked Abdu, should we organize a reading at the Djiboutian embassy, he said they'd probably rather kill him than give him a reading at the embassy because of his politics. There are dictators and replaced with dictators. Um... So that's, that's a little about Abdu, and my method of translating is sound, music, sound. I think that comes from my being a musician in a past life, or the present life, I guess, but it seems like a past life. I also was a French and Spanish teacher briefly before becoming a counselor. And so all those things have come come together in my translating. I love getting in the skin of someone else and seeing the world through their lens. I love bringing in the music. And French, just by its nature, is very musical. You just see the words that, that rhyme right off the bat. So my translations are... Developed by looking at each word looking them up in the English English well the French English Dictionary I have two hard copies then there's an English English Dictionary then I have two French English Dictionaries online and two French French ones and so I look to get every possible Meaning there and then what I do is a sound map so I map out the sounds in the original text and see what patterns, if any, because I don't want to impose my view that there has to be a, a sound pattern there, and I color coordinate it. So for the poem that I'm going to read by Roy Berry, this was the first stanza, and this was the sound map, and can you see the, the, the colors coming out? So it hit me that there were, s- the yellow was the same sound, very, very similar, well, it's a very popular common sound in French. It's an E, it doesn't exist in English, so it makes it hard to do the same sound. Plus, if you try to do the same sound, it's usually to keep the meaning and get the same exact sound. That's really, that, that happens in a blue moon. So the sound d'évalué, foudroyer, dépossédé, avait, entré, avait, dispersé, désormais. that a sound, and it has to be stress sound. So I had to make sure that in my translation, I had some repetition of sound. Not so great, but at least some. I had here the "ass" sound, devalued, vowels, had, vast. And that, that's in that color. But then the fun part, alliteration, I think I'm pretty good in alliteration. He does a lot of d's. And the sound, the effect of the d's, dévalué, "foudroyer," dépossédé. There was one with two Ds. Um, Dans, dispersé, désormer, and the last word monde. So the effect of that D sound is powerful. It's in your face. It's saying, this is what I think, and take it or leave it. And I was fortunate and lucky that I was able to find words in the same stanza with the D underlined here, devalued. That was a good one. I got two of those. Degraded. Three, deprived, had, and the last word, world. So it, it sounds easy. Yeah, here it is. It it, it it takes hours to to get that there. And then I noticed there was another little uh, theme of e e. That sound e. It's not in English, we have E, we kind of diphthong things, we're more relaxed when we speak English, but that E sound is a very crisp sound, and he had his souris, l'afrique, and nourrir. And I thought, again, this is one stanza, so yes, coincidence could be, but the fact that they're so close there and repeated, so I was able to come up with, instead of E, I had I, smiles, Deprived, and I kept those close together to mimic the way it was in the original French with the Souris and the athlète together. So that's a little bit of my process, and I'm going to read the poem Eight Faces, Oui Visage, and these were based on faces of African people, and there there are eight stanzas, and Abdou describes one portrait, a black and white photo, and then moves on to the next one. So I'm going to start with the one that I'm going to read French-English so you'll hear some sounds here. And this first one, I I guess you all want to hear what kind of job I did with it. So here it is in its totality. Oui, visage. La voilà qui sourit, pourtant... L'Afrique dévaluée, foudroyée, dépossédée de tout ce qu'il y avait dans ses entrées, tout ce qu'elle avait pour nourrir ses enfants, dispersée désormais aux quatre coins du vaste monde. One. See how Africa smiles, though devalued, degraded, deprived of all there was in her bowels, all she had to nourish her children, dispersed forever to every shore of the vast world. Deux. Des petits yeux de rien du tout qui ébranle, tout d'un coup, d'un cilement, si les instances du monde, regarde pas encore à ces vieux pour être éteints. Two, tiny eyes that suddenly turn the balance of the world upside down in a blink. Gaze not yet old enough to be snuffed. Trois, voilà le migrant rural, il semble avoir perdu son frère, le peregrin de la ville qui sillonne les quartiers. Three, here is the rural migrant who seems to have lost his brother. Towns nomad, crisscrossing districts. Quatre. Certains restent là, assis, à regarder le temps passer sur eux. D'autres se dépoussièrent, se lèvent et marchent droit vers l'ouest, cas sur des mirages. Four. Some are left here, seated, to watch time pass. Others dust themselves off. Get up and walk toward the west, upright, course set for a mirage. Cinq. 5. Camper sur un sursis yeux, quant à soi, se soustraire à l'œil glouton des caméras. Regardez le ciel, le sablier du temps, lui, s'est accéléré. Le naufrage de la vieillesse a demain. de main. Five. Remain fearlessly in one's own space. Escape the greedy camera's eye. Watch the sky. The sand glass of time has sped up. The shipwreck of old age at hand. Six. Photographier quelqu'un d'un entier avec son poids de sourire, de mémoire et d'histoire qu'on devine par moments dans la lueur tremblante. De ses yeux six six photograph someone's core with the weight of smile, memory, and history guessed at, flickering now and again in eyes, set visage orné d'un maigre sourire. Juste quoi se frayer un chemin dans une foule Tantôt hostile, tantôt amie Un maigre sourire peut-être Mais une sérénité gagnée de haute lutte À force de contrer les coups de campon du destin Seven Face adorned with a thin smile Something to make your way through a crowd That's sometimes hostile sometimes kind, a thin smile perhaps, but a calmness hard won by countering blows from destiny's cleated souls. 8. Il ne paraît pas perdu dans le temps. Il sentait à nous sourire. Il est beau, il est fort, il est noir et jeune. Il tient à croquer à pleines dents à l'igname de la vie. Eight. He doesn't appear to be lost in time and persists in smiling at us. He is handsome, strong, black, and young. With gusto, he'll feast on the yam of life. Thank you.
4: Thank you very much. Uh, I too would like to thank everyone who has had a hand in organizing this panel and this event. It's a lovely uh, event to have, and I hope uh, there will be a lot more. I come to you with the greetings of my uh, friend, the uh, Iranian filmmaker Abbas Kiarostami, whose name you may have heard. He, uh, his film, Taste of Cherry, won the uh, Oscar in... Uh, uh, 1997 and he has had many films and he's a very um, Innovative filmmaker one who says uh, I'd rather have my audience sleep uh, during my films than to um, To to keep them awake with the tricks of technology um, He he's he's really the ultimate anti Hollywood, but a uh, few people knew that he was also a poet um, I was lucky as a, as his friend to have received uh, some poems of him or of his over the years and in 2001 uh Harvard invited me uh, and I had my uh, translation com- uh, translation partner uh professor michael beard of the university of north dakota help me translate this work uh which he had made its appearance in tehran 6 months previously and uh, we made a, a bilingual text facing uh, Persian and uh, uh, English on the same page. By way of introduction, let me say that Persian is, uh, according to traditional categorizations of languages, an Indo-European language. Oftentimes, it, 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 sounds, it looks strange to Americans because it's written in the Perso-Arabic script. But it is linguistically connected with, with uh, Indian languages and, and English and you know old, a whole family of languages, so uh, linguistically speaking, the uh, poems do not present any uh, particular problems, uh, however aesthetically they do uh, present problems because it's a very old poetic tradition, uh, not only in terms of its internal systemic uh, coordinates, but also in terms of the centrality of the poetry in the culture. Oftentimes, people like myself uh, are surprised, as I was at the age of 24 when I came to this country for the first time, to see how marginal, really, poetry was to American culture. It's, it seems to be making a, a revival, and that's, that's a blessed thing, I think. Uh, but if you go outside this country, to Europe and to the rest of the world, you'll see how central poetry is to so many cultures. And I think that is something for us to keep in mind as we approach the effort that we give to poetry. Suffice it to say, for example, that something like 40% of all uh, outcome of uh, Persian literature in the modern times have been translated into French. Only 2.8% is translated into English and and published in America. So it's a very, very, uh, this system really is a very closed system when it comes to receiving receiving, uh, texts from other cultures, uh, which we may or may not wish to do something about. uh, But as it is, at least in terms of comprehension, we do need to make some steps and to understand the aesthetic uh, underpinnings of poems such as you see translated from Persian. Basically, and to put it in a couple of sentences, only um, Persian poetry uh, started in the 10th century uh, in eastern Iran. It uh, was a response to the coming of Islam uh, to Iran, and it changed Islam. It changed it, it, it itself changed as a result of Islam, and there was a great give and take between the old religion of Zoroastrianism and its texts, the Avesta and the Zand. Uh, with uh, the new text of the new religion, the Quran, and so it made the language and the culture even more what we call logocentric, which means with the language and its literature at the center of everything. In the, this tradition, in many classical texts that uh, we use in this country and we know, uh, in Persian poetry, it, there are a sets of contra- contraries and complementarities that form the struts and beams of Persian poetry. And the way Abbas Kiarostami uh, counters this is really through a simultaneous uh, bowing to the tradition, but then charting his own course. Uh, for example, the opening poem in this collection, Walking with the Wind, uh, deals with color contrasts, or lack thereof. Uh, it goes, the poem goes, in our translation, a white foal emerges through the fog and disappears into the fog. Uh, at first glance, it seems like uh, we are seeing nothing because everything is white. The foal is white, and, and fog, as we know, is white. But then you, we should take this as an invitation by the poet to look for finer uh, color differences shades of color, not necessarily the contrast between black and white, but shades of white. And white, of course, is a very important color to recognize the shades of, because you know we may recognize other shades of other colors, but not necessarily white. So he uh, modifies, and one can say changes, a whole tradition of over a millennium uh, by inviting us to look more closely, uh, this is exactly what he does in his films, too. That's why his films are not are the anti, anti-Hollywood. Not, they are not films that sustain themselves, sustain our attention, and keep our attention uh, as a result of all the, the click and clack and, and the noise and the, and the drama and the tragedy. It's, it's, it's a very slow-moving narrative, and sometimes there's only a hint of the narrative. The rest is just a series of images that we are invited to contemplate. Uh, another poem of his and in this poem it, these are all haiku like poems not necessarily in the rigid formation of haikus as they have developed in, J- in Japan and other eastern cultures but uh, in a way in which uh, it's a poetry of brevity it's a poetry that does not take too much of your attention nor too much of your time uh, and he parades some characters, as he does in his films. And one of the most important characters in uh, uh, these series of poems is the spider, ankabut kabut in Persian. And this spider uh, has nothing of the negative traits that we associate with the animal, uh, but all the wonderful things about it the busybody, the one who always works and, and, and toils and produces something. And, of course, he deftly uses the meanings of weaving, which works both in English and Persian uh, as both for words, like weaving the, we, the weaving of words and the weaving of thread, for example. And so what he says here is... Uh, 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 in my in our translation gently the spider is shooed away from the old nun's hat so he leaves us to decide what the uh, the, the relationship or the contrast is between the spider and the nun uh, is it is it one works and the other does not is it you know what what it is so it, it's it, everything he does is an invitation for us to some sort of thinking uh based solely on the characters in the poem, in these small things. Uh, As you may know, in the wake of and as a result of the Iranian Revolution, a uh, long, a a very uh, sizable uh, number of Iranians, Persian speakers, uh, were driven out of the country. And for the first time, we have a diaspora, mostly in this country, the capital being in Los Angeles. Uh, but the diaspora has become a more important theme. And here, uh, with another poet, Ismail Choi, whose uh, work is titled Outlandia, Bidar Koja, a word that he concocts to say uh, all exile is the same, all places of exile are the same, displacement, uprootedness, and all of the, those are conditions of people driven out of their own habitat and having to adjust to new... Uh, environs as, as such, you know, Outlandia. This Outlandia, uh, which which we made up for his uh, made up, uh, coined word of Bidar Koja. and here he recalls the poet in uh, in exile, recalls one of the images of of gathering uh, white mulberries. White mulberries are very. Uh, very uh, common in 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 Iran, Afghanistan, Central Asia, and oftentimes we as kids would used to uh, pick them from the ground because it's hard to pick them from the, the the branches of the tree, and we would just blow the dust off and off of it and and, and eat it whole. So here's one poem, and I'll just read the English uh, for you. Uh, it's 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 a uh, you have to imagine how this the kite here really comes to in its in its being broken from its stem it recalls the image of an exile a long string that ends in a tattered kite hanging on the branch of an old mulberry tree whose afternoon shade stretches like an umbrella over the barefooted noise of the kids in the alley my god my whole childhood is a summary a summary in the snapshot of this memory look a dusty earth, a dusty sky, a dusty sun, and dusty kids who pick the dusty berries from the dusty ground with their dusty hands, blow off, blow the dust off, and stick them in their mouths, and a tattered kite on the branch of the old mulberry tree. So uh, a kind of metaphor for exile in the form of a kite broken from its, its the hand of whoever is holding it and caught in the branches of a tree. The final poem I'll read is uh, by uh, a very famous Iranian woman poet. Uh, she lived only for 32 years and wrote poetry on, only for 15. And yet she gave all of the people of her generation and generations that follow hers uh, a language of love and a language of tenderness that was so uh, so bitterly lacking from the tradition, uh, especially in its modern articulations and modern ways of uttering it. In this poem, she imagines a return from the uh, world of the dead and uh, what, what might bring back to the world of the living. Uh, I'll just read the English again. I'll be greeting the sun again and the stream that flowed in me, and the clouds that were my long thoughts, and the painful growth of the aspens in the grove that passed through droughts with me. I'll be greeting the flocks of crows who brought me, as souvenirs, smells of the fields at night. I'll be greeting my mother again, who lived in the mirror and resembled my old age, and the earth whose inner parts my lust for renewal hath sown with green seedlings. I shall come, I shall come, I shall come, with my hair diffusing smells of the the underworld, with my eyes intense experiences of the dark, with the shrubs I have picked in the meadows beyond the wall. I shall come, I shall come, I shall come, and the threshold will be replete with love, and I'll be greeting again those who love and the girls still waiting at the threshold replete with love. Uh, Persian poetry is, uh, as I said at the beginning, a very central uh, concern of uh, uh, many Persian speakers in Iran, Afghanistan, in Central Asia, and now in the spaces of the diaspora. It lives on, and it certainly merits our attention uh, more than before, and at least commensurate with the place that it has in the culture itself. Thank you very much.
5: So let me see if I can get this hooked up. So first of all, um, like everybody else, I would like to thank, especially Donka, for putting together this uh, panel. Which you know, people come, they do a panel and and go on. This has been about a year-long effort for her to put this together to get all of us on the same page at the same time, bios and that sort of thing. So thank you, Donka, very much. Thank you to the organizers of City Lit. For having us, thank you guys for coming out on a beautiful afternoon when you could be outside in the sun and sitting here and listening to us talk about <laughs> translation. Sorry, <laughs> getting burned. Getting burned. All right, no, it's, it is that time of year. Um, I am going to read just two poems today. They are by contemporary Russian poet Ina Kabush. She has just turned fifty-one. She began publishing in the nineteen eighties, which means, of course, that she was um, a part started. She's straddling the last years of the Soviet regime and then moving in towards. Um, the transition to current-day Russia. She's published six books of poetry and has won numerous Russian and international awards, but uh, her poetry is largely unavailable in English. And the translations that I'm going to read today are part of a larger translation and publication project that I am undertaking with publisher Catherine McNamara of Artist's Proof Editions. That's based in Charlottesville. Um, Some of the translations are about to go live in the next Lock Raven review, as Danka has said. Um, so I thought I would start with one of them. This is not online yet, but when you when it does go live online, this is what it will look like. I am not a technology person. Again, I'm sorry it's so small. I didn't realize that the screen was going to be so small. So this poem was written 20 years ago on the eve of Russia's disastrous incursion into Chechnya. If you remember that, it's still ongoing. Um, In the poem, Ina Kabush invokes the great Russian poet Lermontov, whose 200th birthday is later this month. Lermontov served in the imperial Russian army in what is today Chechnya, but his poetry transcends empires and oil politics. And I wanted to read this particular poem today um, because it's sort of timeless, and I wanted to read it in honor of my friends in Ukraine um, as well as my friends in Russia. So it is untitled in the Russian, but we've titled it um, from the first line, Of the Two Women Who Came to Solomon. Of the two women who came to Solomon, one was a man. Only a man would say, cut it in two, for he did not give birth, and principle for him is more important than life. A man always divides into Ghibellines and Guelphs, into white Guelphs and black Guelphs, into blacks and whites, into white and red-skinned, into reds and whites, A man divides. A woman multiplies. A man sees in Chechnya, which was conquered by Lermontov, a part of Russia. A woman sees the whole of Lermontov. And the woman says to the Tsar, give them this Chechnya. Just let it live. Because for her life and not the kilometer, is the sole unit of measure. And she, who always gives herself up, who's always left behind with her belly, knows that what stays with you is only what you've given up. But the Tsar answers, death to the sons of bitches, and begins to bomb, because he's a man and not Solomon. So as I said earlier, the translation that I've just read is part of a a really, I think, cool and innovative collection for the iPad that is coming out, we hope, in the fall, although we are a little behind. So what we're producing is a bilingual, multimedia chapbook that includes audio of the poem in both Russian and English, original music, and a video film representing and responding to the poem. We haven't yet produced the video for the poem that I just read, the Solomon poem, but we do have video for the next one. The poem is called Yuri Gagarin Was a Great Russian Poet. And it taps into Russian pop culture mythology surrounding the mysterious early death of Yuri Gagarin, who was, of course, not a poet at all, but the first human being in space. So in her poem, Ina Kabush links Yuri Gagarin's mysterious early death to the early death of Lermontov. Are you sensing a theme here? We've had a lot of Lermontov poems. Um, I'll just point out that all of this backstory is... um, Creating a lot of challenges for me as a translator, because how should you handle something like this? These kinds of embedded literary and cultural illusions, these are items that are immediately clear to any, any literate Russian reader and probably not clear at all to most English language readers. So the backstory of, of Gagarin and the backstory of Lermontov. So I'll show you a little bit about how this uh, t- uh, chapbook works. I think I'm going to show you the video next, but I wanted to just give you a sense of what we can do with this technology. Um, I'll read you a poem in English, that's what I wanted to do. All right. And that's the one on the third page of your handout, Yuri Gagarin was a great Russian poet Russia shoved him out of herself into the sky as if into exile, as if to the Caucasus. And he boarded a carriage, that is, a rocket. For the path of rockets, that's the path of poets, said, let's go, and smiled his Gagarin smile. And in that smile was the whole earth, the very best that's here, Earth in blue radiance, news to the sky from humanity. Because the poet's the one who speaks with the sky, overcoming gravity as if it were the language barrier. So now I'm going to show you the video poem, but I'm going to say a few words about it before I show it to you. Um, If you are interested in translation theory, you will note in the video that we paid attention to the performative, locative, and interpersonal functions of translation. Um, We use the power of digital media to locate the poem's subject and the poem itself in time and space, and also in its rightful intellectual and cultural tradition. Now, the Gagarin poem that I just read you is a really good one for this type of treatment, Uh, because in it, Kabush, the poet, explicitly references Lermontov in her choice of subject matter, her images, and a quotation from one of Lermontov's poems that she embeds in her text. That's the line about the earth in Blue Radiance. So in the video, what we decided to do was to highlight that connection to Lermontov by using his portrait, which you'll see at the end, his painting, he was a very good painter of the Caucasus Mountains, and also by digitally sampling a line from the poem, that Ina Kabush references, which you'll hear at the end of the poem, Um, So I'm going to show you now the video of Ina Kabush's Yuri Gagarin was a great Russian poet. Карету, то есть ракету, ибо путь ракет поэтов путь, сказал. Поехали, и улыбнулся своей гагаринской улыбкой. И в этой улыбке была вся земля, все лучшее, что на ней есть, Земля сия не голубом, Весть небу от человечества, Потому что поэт тот, кто говорит с небом. Словно языковой барьер, преодолевая
1: земное притяжение.
5: I'm sure you probably had trouble hearing that. I'll be happy to play this for anybody afterwards when you can come up and actually hear it uh, more closely. There was original music um, composed for this. Um, this is a really cool project. As far as I know, nobody's doing anything like this with translation. So I'm happy to talk about it for hours and we will be happy to take questions afterwards.
1: Polish to English, and um, uh, I'm an author of two books of translations. Uh, These are bilingual books, poems by Lidia Kosk, and on one, one side you have the Polish original, and then the translation is on the opposite side. But I also translate from English to Polish. And for example, I have um, translated poems by three Maryland Poets Laureate, Lucille Clifton, Josephine Jacobson, and Linda Paston. And these have been published in Poland. So what I will do today, um, I will share examples of both. I chose very short poems so that I can read them in both languages. And the first one will be Lucille Clifton's. I meant to bring handouts for to make it easier on you, and I had them made, but I forgot to bring them. Not that it helps you, but (laughs) I thought about it. Okay, so the first one is a poem by Lucille Clifton, praise song. You may know it by heart. (laughs) Okay, so first in English, to my aunt Blanche. Who rolled from grass to driveway into the street one Sunday morning? I was ten. I had never seen a human woman hurl her basketball of a body into the traffic of the world. Praise to the drivers who stopped in time. Praise to the faith with which she rose after some moments. Then slowly walked, signing back to her family. Praise to the arms which understood little or nothing of what it meant, but welcomed her in without judgment, accepting it all like children might, like God. And now in Polish, in my translation. Pieśń pochwalna dla mojej ciotki Blanki co potrlała się z trawy na ulicę w niedzielny poranek. Miałam dziesięć lat. Nie widziałam nigdy kobiety rzucającej piłkę swego ciała pod nogi pędzącemu światu. Chwała kierowcom, że zatrzymali się w porę. Chwała wieże, z którą podniosła się po długiej chwili, by powoli wrócić do rodziny. Chwała ramionom, rozumiejącym mało lub wcale, co to znaczy, które objęły ją bez osądzania, przyjmując wszystko, jak potrafią dzieci, jak Bóg. Now, right in the first line, there is a problem, I mean, not problem, We can use it as an example of decisions that translators have to make. To my aunt Blanche, so there is a name. The question is, what do I do with the name when I translate into Polish? So I was going back and forth because, you know, the name might be very important for the poet. and But then, of course, if it's strange sounding in the new language and we want the poem to work in the new language. So I decided to change it. So that's why it's dla ciotki, Blanki. The name is Blanka as opposed to Blanche. Now the ending, Blanka is A, but in the poem it's Blanki, I. That's because Polish is characterized by a very uh, this is so very different from english abundance of inflectional forms which mean we, and in particular with regard to nouns and um, adjectives so that means that the endings of Nouns and adjectives change, so that 's why because it 's a we have seven cases so for nouns and um, so that 's why it 's not blanka, but it 's Okay, so this is the kind of thing that will uh, if you would be interested in more uh, to hear more about it, I will be happy to do that in the uh, discussion part but then i am w- going to the other poem, the one that I translated from Polish to English, and I chose the poem. Um, by Lydia Kosk titled From the Window of My Apartment. And it comes from this book. And the reason I chose this is that last night I we got a video made to this poem. So, um, I think this is a very interesting situation when I translated the poem from Polish to English. So it got new, new life in po- in English. Last year, that English version was set to music. So it was translated into music and it was performed by choir at the McDonald's School. The um, composer is uh, Philip Olsen, who is the choir director and teacher there. And now it's being translated into video art by one of the students at McDonough who got interested and is doing this as a project. So I would like to show the video, and I hope it will work, and then you can hear it. Now, it's not a final product. It doesn't have titles. Oh, wait, wait. (laughs) Just a second, wait. (laughs) Pavel, could we wait? Pavel, could we wait? Or it's independent of our (laughs) desires. Okay, so because I want to say a few things. It's not a long... um, uh, but what I need to say is it's not a final product, so it doesn't have title and credits. And it doesn't have the live choir music. What you will hear is the digital choir. Okay, so That's why it doesn't have the English words, so I first have to read the words to you. <laughs> because the poem starts with the poet, Lydia Kosk, reading her poem in Polish. And then the the choir starts and then only at the end you see the book and the English version. So I'm reading my translation. From the window of my apartment. Above the apartment house whose windows exchange looks with mine, the moon got stuck among the rocks and boulders of clouds. He kept hanging there stubbornly, until I forgot that I had broken with him permanently, until I forgot that my soul did not sing anymore, until all of me was a song. So, if we could ask the video... (laughs)
6: Mojego mieszkania. Nad domem, naprzeciwko, co oknami patrzy ku memu oknu, zawiesił się księżyc wśród skał i kamieni z obłoków. I widział długo, wytrwale, aż zapomniałam, że z nim zerwałam na stale. Aż zapomniałam, że w duszy już tak dawno brak grania. Aż cała była moc dla
1: I think we can, uh, oh, I may also add that uh, Ryan got very excited about the whole thing and uh, Philip is, the the composer, is composing music to to more of Mum's poems and they will be turned into videos so there will be a whole series. So thank you very much for the Panelists, and for your attention here, and I hope that you have questions. Even though I know it's so very cold in here, <laughs> so and if you, if you, we will be very happy to answer them. Thank you very much. I think we, if you had some hot coffee, that would be good. Yeah
4: a woman poet who is very famous, but you didn't tell us her name, was it really- I'm sorry, I apologize. Yes, Farooq Farukh Farrokhzad, like other Persian names, my own included, it's a long name. I, I'll give you the book so you can, you can actually take a look at it. Farooq is the first name, that's F-O-R-U-G-H, and Farrokhzad F-A-R-R-O-K-H-Z-A-D. And oftentimes when you come across transliteration problems, people may translate, transliterate differently. Because, you know, you have to rewrite the letters and produce sounds into the sounds of the, the letters of the new language. So you may come upon various spellings. But uh, she, she, she's very well known, and she, she does have a presence on the Internet because Iranian women after her have kept her up her reputation up and uh, have presented her poems in various ways on the Internet. Is
3: the
4: Persian poetry in Farsi? Uh, yeah, Farsi is like Deutsch or Espanol. It's a Persian word for Persian. That's why we try to discourage the use of it when speaking English. Because it's like saying, I know a little Deutsch, but I don't know any Espanol. Uh, Languages have different names in other languages. This phenomenon is called exonym, which means names elsewhere. So we think the the better word is Persian. Besides, of course, it's got thousands of years years of interaction with the West, and more recently with English which, if we use the word Farsi, that gets erased. Okay, thank you. Pleasure. Do you have any
6: recommendations for teaching poems that have been
2: translated? I think that it's fun for classes to see different translations of the same poem, mm. and then they can examine the feelings and the reactions that they have to each of the translations and students can learn to see what's more effective, what maybe is not so effective, or the same line in the original text becomes, goes in a different direction in in two different translations. Um, and I think students get engaged with that. Something else that I sometimes do with a group that um, they all speak different languages, different foreign languages, is use a Shakespearean text and have them translate that text into contemporary English sounds. And one can then examine the process that went on and the different products that are produced from that.
5: I think if you read reviews of translations, it's sometimes possible to come away with the notion that there is some perfect translation out there, and that we all have to kind of work towards that. And I would encourage you to think differently. Um, I would think about a musical performance, for example. Um, Joshua Bell would play something differently from Yasha Heifetz would play something differently. You know, each musician interprets something differently depending on training. Background, technique, um, and I think that's probably true about translation as well. It's it's not as if there's some secret inner translation that if we all just work hard enough, we will all end up at the same place. It's it's very different depending on who translates and how.
0: I was going to say that, yes about that, uh, I mean, copyrights and things. Do our translators? You know, if you're translating a poem or something that's only been translated before. You have feel that you have to avoid the other trans, previous translators, uh, um, you know, words or phrases, or or a lot of them.
1: Well, first of all, first of all, you need the uh, uh, permission to translate a poem into a different language. So usually, like for example, if it's I can speak of something that I experienced, Wisława Szymborska, you know, a Nobel Prize winner. Um, usually the, there is a, a monopoly, you know, that only Barintcha and Kavana could translate her. So there, there is a possibility to get um, permission to translate one poem, which you know I experienced. But at the time when I asked for it, for the permission, that that particular poem was not translated yet into English. So of course, you know, I translated how I wanted to translate it. I don't think uh, people would want to translate something that has been already translated.: I, I think from otherwise. You from know. my
2: personal view, I have translated René Schall, who has been widely translated. On the one hand, the poems I find that have never been translated, the the publishers love that because it's never before been there, and you have to say whether it's appeared, but then because of my unique way of translating that you saw, the translations that are out there, and there are many, and and many great writers have translated Schalch, but they haven't translated the way I translate. So I think one has to ponder whether they are contributing something different to the body of translation that's out there. And I feel I have, and so I, I do. I don't see a point, though, if there's a beautifully translated poem for me that, to then go, well, I'm going to translate that. But I think the other question is, do I look at the other translations as I translate? And I find that my most um, creative, insightful translation comes when I labor over the poem without looking at anything else. I come up with my translation, then I look at what's there, and then if I see something that was uh, that I overlooked or it's done in a much better way, I'm, I, don't, I don't have remorse to take that part of it and put it there, but if I see a, a, a leap of brilliance that I would never have come across, I feel guilty and don't want to steal that. (laughs) That belongs to the the translator who came up with that.
6: I'm wondering for the whole panel whether you agree with the notion that in order to translate poetry well, you must be a poet yourself.
4: (laughs) Uh, Not necessarily. I think, uh, as long as you have familiarity with the two poetic traditions—the translate, the tradition from which you are translating, and the tradition into which you are translating—your own talents may be may go in different ways. Uh, oftentimes, translation, especially from remoter languages such as Persian, Arabic, let's say Tagalog, Turkish, those languages people are under the uh, assumption that it's, it's sufficient if they know the two languages. I think that's a very low bar to cross. I think you need to know the two poetic traditions and the aesthetics behind the making of the poem. Whether you have to be a poet uh, yourself, I don't necessarily think so. And In fact, I have seen instances in which that becomes an impediment because then you have, you're set in your own views of poetry in, in, in what you think poetry ought to be. And so you may end up translating another poet in the image of your own uh, writings. So I think there's a, a, a plane of, for the translator to pick and choose uh, comparable figures in the target language to the poet that they are translating and then start this 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 process of first translating the substance, uh, literally, lexically, and then go beyond it to see what assets may he may gain, he or she may gain from the poetics of the target language to compensate the losses, the inevitable losses that texts suffer when you translate them out of their own native language. So then
6: you don't feel that. Having translated
4: a poem, you have produced a new poem, another poem. Sure, you have produced, but that does not that does not make you a poet necessarily, uh, because there, you know, there's there's this notion of the invisible translator, the notion that you first stand in the middle between the text and the and the new reader, and then you have to reduce your own your own role to a. to to a minimum, shall we say, Uh, to simply transmit a precious gem, let's say, from one one language to another language. So I don't necessarily think that translators, intrusive translation is the best way to translate poetry. Do you agree, though, that
6: many people feel that you will never, for instance, understand Dante,
4: unless you study Italian and can read him in the original? Oh, absolutely. That's not what I meant. Of course you should know Italian, and of course you should know Florence, and of course you should know the turn of the 13th to the 14th centuries, and of course you should know the politics of Florence and all the kinds of things. But you don't necessarily have to be an English poet to translate him into English.
5: I would just say that there are three of us who were primarily identify ourselves as poets on this panel, so I, I'm kind of interested in what other people might, how other people might respond to that sure. question. <laughs> how do you respond? You go first. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, I've read translations by folks who are not poets, and some of them are amazing. And I have read translations of non-poets, which are not. And vice versa, I've read translations of poets which are awful. And I've read translations of poets which sound like the poet. So it's, um, in my other life, I'm a counselor, a counselor educator professor at UDC. And we have the question can teachers become counselors? And on the one hand, that's wonderful that they've had the experience in a school and the classroom. They know classroom management. They know how to relate to kids. But on the other hand, they bring with them a set of skills into the counselor role where they're not grading the student. And they're in a different, um, a different position with the student. So they have, to, they have to fight that tendency of being a teacher and embrace the new role of being a counselor. Similarly, I love that word, hard to, f- to pronounce, similarly, uh, a poet translating has to then change roles and be subservient to the text there and go with what the original text says rather than how they would write a poem. Also, I think when, when your question is terrific because it brings up the other question that isn't asked is, how does translating influence our own poetry? And for me, I never wrote prose poems until I started translating René Charles. Mm. And the prose poem form came from Baudelaire and the French Surrealists, and the, uh, they took it from Baudelaire. Uh, and so I started writing prose poems. And it was a new door, a new opening to a different kind of writing. And, and I got on that kind of kick where I wrote 20 prose poems. And there are other influences on me, some of which I'm not even aware from my
6: translation. This also is for everyone. I wonder what kind of feedback you get from the original authors after you have made a translation. How do they feel about the translation?
4: Well, for one thing, uh, uh, in in my case, at least, translating from Persian, uh, hardly any poet knows English the way uh, I have studied it, and I have lived in an English-speaking environment for 48 years. So it gives me a plane in which to have a, a discussion with the poet, but not necessarily to consider his judgment. Oftentimes, poets are very deeply rooted in their own cultures, which precludes their excursions as cosmopolitan pickers and choosers of languages and poetics and so on and so forth. So I don't really give much credence to the original poet if, if, I, if I need to. I, you know For one thing, I really think at the end of writing a poem, the poet himself or herself is reduced to another reader. So that text, that text has its own life, And it has its own claim on coherence. So it is something for me, who knows both languages, knows both literary traditions, I would be in a much better. And is not a poet, by the way, would be in a much better position to do the diligence or the drudgery of translation, if you will, objectively, without being bound by one's own poetics or, without being bound by any consideration of the of the original poet or even the, or, or even the, the, the giving language the, the original language, the source language, I translate for my readers, and I assume that they do not know the language it would be, It would be hardly appropriate for me to translate uh, Persian poetry for someone in, into English for someone who knows Persian already they should read the original, but I am I am a mediator to those people who do not know Persian and its, own, its beauties, and that's, that's where I see my responsibilities.
5: Something else I'll say about that. Um, I, my figures are not exact, but they're close. Something like only 3%, of, maybe it's even less, 3% of the books that we publish in America in any given year are translations. And that's not poetry. That's everything. That's the instruction manual for how to run your you know, uh, computer. And, and, and it's, I mean, it's, So it's a very minuscule amount of the world's literature coming in our door at any given time. And my experience with, with the poets that I work with Uh, is they're just so happy to have something out in English because the market, I mean, the world is speaking English and they would like to have their work in English too. Um, I will say though, I do have one poet that I work with who speaks very good English, reads English well, um, and it's sort of frustrating to work with her because she wants to argue about (laughs) A's and and ands and these and articles that she doesn't quite understand how to use in English even though she's a very good English speaker and we communicate in English. Um, so that can be sort of a, a, a... Translating in the digital age is quite different. I mean, I translated before the digital age. Uh, it's quite something to be able to get on your email and email back and forth with your poet about, well, did you mean this and did you mean that? Um, it's great in many ways, and it's also frightening in others because the world is much, much smaller. Um, and uh, you do have to respond, and I think it's... I mean, obviously, if your poet doesn't understand why you've put a or then or the in their poem... I feel like it's my responsibility not necessarily to change it, but to at least be able to explain to her logically about why I did that.
2: There's a whole um, story that goes behind the relationship of the translator and the person tr- that um, he or she is translating. And in some ways, translating René Chal was very easy in that he's dead. So there was no... Push back about anything that I had written there. Um, the problem with René Schaal is that you have to go through Gallimard, and you have to pay $50 a poem sometimes for the rights and for the book. You have to pay hundreds of dollars for the rights. Um, and the widow, Schaal, is the person that Gallimard goes to and checks with and then she comes up with the money figure and tells Gallimard, or so they say, who tells us. Whereas on the other extreme... Um, my work with with some of the poets, um, with Suzanne Dracius, every line I translated, I shared with her of every poem. And these were long, skinny line poems. And she would have an opinion about what I had done there. And I think the longer we worked together, the more trust we developed. And I I saw that as building a relationship in the beginning, She questioned everything I had put and what, why did you use this or or that. And by the end of our project, at the end of a year and a half, two years, she was more trusting than... And I think we finally agreed that I would deal with the punctuation in English the way I saw fit for an English poem, and I wouldn't change any of the French, and that would appear side by side. With Abdu... Abdul lives nearby. I discovered him on Facebook and thought, Djibouti, how exciting. He was a visiting professor at GW. So we met for, for coffee at Starbucks. We sat down. I said, hey, I want to do your collection of uh, poetry. He said, uh, hey, that'd be great. Um, and then I said, I'll, I'm going to do the, the draft for the NEA. I needed 12 pages of poetry. He went off to Paris on break, and I couldn't reach him, and it was due, but I wasn't going to send it in without his looking at it. Then he looked at it, and he had a few comments here or there, and he said, that, that looks lovely. And um, it's been, he's been so easygoing and accepting towards the end when I thought the book was done. And I go like, yes, you know how you count down the poems, and you know. And then he said, "Well, you know, the book has been reissued, and so I've added some some work. And the addition was about a third of what I'd already done. So I was somewhat um, panicky about the time crunch. But he then started giving me the trots, the literal translations, which he could have done all along, but. At that point, I think he felt sorry for me and I had so many other time constraints. So he would just give me the bare minimum of of what was there. Then I could do the whole sound mapping and, and do my thing. To, to And that went a lot faster. And he seemed very happy and very encouraging. He'd write, bravo, after I would show him what I had done there. I
1: have a question.
2: Because that's very interesting. So when he
1: gave you that. I, that sounds bad to give me the trot. Uh, okay, no, but, the, that. but that, that's a very, very interesting question because you have your own very specific approach with the sounds. Yes. Was it much more, was it much easier then for you to work the sounds in as, as compared to when you starting from the beginning? I think that it was because um, part of it is I'm not a native French
2: speaker, so to not have to puzzle out with the line breaks in the syntax what the meaning was it made it a lot easier. Then here were the words, and then I could go and look up each of the words in my own little way to get the the sounds. But because he's a poet, some of his literal translations were quite poetic, and it was okay to steal from him a little bit.
1: So are you cold enough? <laughs> Ready for the books? <laughs> Thank you so very much. That was lovely. You. Oh, you have oh, one more? Yes. Fantastic. Oh. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> Everybody's yes, ready. So okay. Um, I wonder how the collaboration
6: with, with
1: that story. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll give you a very short version. <laughs> um, Kathy Corcoran, here in the audience, she uh, was teaching uh, literature. And then when she had... Uh, uh, classes, uh, you know, uh, like Polish poets, she would invite me to to deal with that. <laughs> and also, coming back to the uh, question before and Nancy's answer, um, the translations, comparing different versions, tra- comparing version, translations done by different people. So that's what I did in one one or more of the classes. We were doing Polish poets. Wysława Szymborska or Czesław Miłosz. And we brought different, I brought a lot of different uh, translations. Most of them were done by people who didn't have uh, permission to do that. <laughs> so we could really, and you know, m- many other poets, not just Polish poets, but that was really great. Uh, students, under, okay, Katy wants to say. i clarify uh, also that uh,
6: the, the course was uh, a senior elective called World Poetry. Uh, as an English teacher at McDonough School, uh, and especially a poetry teacher, I was always um, uh, it's sad that there was a lot of American poetry through the, the years, uh, but uh, very little, if any, little poetry. So I put together this course, and it became a very popular course with the seniors. And uh, so I was able to. Uh, to come in. I had um, the exchange students for Germany, for example, came in and did the same thing with Rilke. Had, had three different translations, and it's interesting they all agreed that Stephen Mitchell's was the best. And, and then um, uh, a Russian, you uh, Russian exchange, and one of the Russian teachers read Anna uh, poetry, and it was just, it was wonderful. I loved it, and. Uh, and Adama's uh, presence and in in coming to, the, to visit the class was very special too. And, and it's interesting that the students, at the end when they write, um, you know, what they got out of the course, pretty much all all of the students said hearing the poem in the original language was very important to them. One of the English, one of the teachers, is Chinese teaches Chinese. And she came and read, poems well, in Chinese, which was very, you know, the general and the students all got a lot out of hearing, hearing the original language. You know, you no know, background in you know, that
5: language, That's important. How was it for your, we you took, when Nancy took her census, there was nobody here who really worked in any other languages. How was it hearing poems in a language that you didn't understand, could you get music from them? Was that, you know, I mean, obviously it's useful to have the translations afterwards, but, or before, I mean, that's an argument on people who do this sort of thing. Should we present the English first, or should we present the English second? But I'm just curious, in terms of listening, was it a useful experience to hear the poems? I think you get the sound. You all get the musicality
0: of the language, but you totally miss the image. Yeah. Yeah. When yeah. I in the French, I mean, like, I just got free. Dillo or something like that, which I know, some, but the rest of it, you know. But it, it, it was interesting to hear it. Uh, I would think you'd have to really kind of hear it a couple times to even get more of it, but I'm glad that y'all did do that. I don't know. It's, sort of like,
3: being in, it's
6: like being in church when they used to do it in Latin. <laughs> you know? And you would sit there and the light would stream in and stand up and just a word they were saying, but it took you to this alpha level. It's like, with, you, know, with, you know, it takes you to this other level where
1: it doesn't really matter what it means. <laughs> you know, it means something holy is going on. Oh, how nice. Oh. Yeah. Well, thank you, guys. That was a lovely discussion. Thank you for coming. Thank you very much. Thank you.